you join me in a moment of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we continue to walk through this uh, so important, so valuable, so applicable chapter in this book, and as we continue to walk through this book, where the Apostle Paul continues to drive home the theme and the message of unity within the church and how that is to be maintained and why that is so important for having a healthy body of believers and for bringing the most glory to Christ, who is the head and Savior of the church. Father, we pray that you would enable us to humble ourselves before your word. We pray that you would enable us to read your word, to interpret it, to understand it, not in light of our logic or our rationale or our experience or our emotions, but that we would seek to understand what you have spoken to us rightly, that we would take your words at face value that we would trust what you have said. And in the end, we pray that you would grow us in our faith, in our love for you, in our love for one another. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, working through the word, you would mortify the sin that indwells us and make us more like your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So when I, uh, when I first joined the Army many, 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 many years ago, um, I enlisted as a, a medic, a combat medic in the Army, and of course they have to put you through medical training. And uh, while I was going through that training, one of the classes, one of the courses we had to take that had a... A radical impact on my life, not just my job in the military, but a radical impact on my life, was a course that we had to take on the topic of infection control. If you've ever taken a class like that, you know what I mean. You begin to realize that these two things on the end of your arms are really just Petri dishes. And you start to worry about using them or putting them close to your face. You begin to learn the importance of protecting a, a sterile field or a sterile environment and why that matters because you are taught in those kind of classes that if one single cell bacterium enters the human body when you are treating a patient, it can radically alter the outcome of that patient's recovery. Because bacterium spread. They multiply. They have babies, and they infect the entire human body. And all it takes is one. Just one microscopic single-cell bacterium 
that is harmful to the human body to enter that patient that you're treating or yourself, and suddenly you find yourself more sick than you've ever been and you cannot figure out why. This is what unchecked sinful behavior does within the body of believers, the local church. The trouble is that in this age, the age in which we live of tolerance, right? That's the, that's the going ideology. Tolerance. Don't judge. Let people live the way they want. Let people be happy. If it makes them happy, how bad can it really be? And so the trouble is, in this age of tolerance in which we live, attempting to correct anyone for any reason is simply viewed as arrogance and dangerous. Right? It's a problem we're seeing in, in politics. Is that the whole idea of civil disagreement is dead? Because if you disagree with what I'm saying, then you are clearly an intolerant person. You're a danger to democracy, right? That's the latest catchphrase that everybody's using. If you don't agree with my political position, you're a danger to democracy. Because only those. Only those who advocate for tolerance can be arrogant and violent toward those who are intolerant. Because those who are tolerant should not tolerate intolerance. What I just said makes sense to somebody. But it doesn't make any sense to me. But that's the world in which we live. The point is that passages like Matthew 18 that we've looked at from time to time, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. As we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, these passages can be incredibly difficult with people today. These passages can be incredibly difficult with Christians within the church because they have been so infected by the culture that they think these passages are just passe. We live in a day where many think that what someone does, what anyone does with himself, with his own body, with his own time, with his own life, is his business. It's nobody else's. That idea has crept into the church. What a believer does within the church with his own time, his own life, his own body, what he or she believes in their own mind, that's nobody else's business, according to many churches today. Well, Paul is going to tell us that this morning that, that that's wrong. That is a completely wrong way of thinking about Christianity and the church. What Paul is going to tell us in these three verses, and really he's been telling us that all along, is that when it comes to believers, when it comes to the local church, 
what every believer does, how every believer lives, what every believer thinks, how every believer behaves is everybody's business. It's everybody's business. Because we are all a part of one body. We're all a part of the same body. Using the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about all believers being different parts of the body of Christ. If my finger, if the tip of my finger comes down with some serious infection, looks like an infection, that doesn't look good. It's green and purple and it's oozing. Looks like it's spreading. Should my foot be concerned about that? It's just a foot. It's got nothing to do with the hand. They're the farthest apart than they could be from each other. But if that infection goes unchecked, the foot is going to die, right? The entire body is going to be damaged, and the foot will be harmed by what seems so distant from it and so irrelevant and none of my business. Paul, however, would not have us Paul, in this illustration, however, is not familiar with um, the concept of infection control, um, right? That, that science had not developed quite yet, but he is familiar with leaven and how it works, and it's much the same. So Paul is going to use what he knows his readers are familiar with to argue the same point. I used infection control because uh, most people today aren't that familiar with leaven, right? Who bakes nowadays? Some people do. But we all understand the idea of how infection spreads, right? Particularly in the age of COVID, everybody understands more about infection control than we ever wanted to understand, right? So Paul's going to use the idea of leaven, and he's going to really drive home three points in these three verses. Number one, he's going to warn them of the danger of tolerance. Number two, he's going to tell them what to do about it. And number three, he's going to explain to his readers why it matters. And so without further ado, here's point number one, where Paul warns them of the danger of tolerance and in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Now, again, I just want to pause and comment on the fact that Paul is not implying that the church is boasting in this person's sin. I don't think that's what they're doing. They're not that depraved. Um, they're not boasting in their sin. They're not saying, yippee, this guy is, has his father's wife, and this is a great thing. But they are boasting as a church. They are a prideful church. They are an arrogant church. And Paul, many times now, by this point in the book, and he'll do it again as we continue to go through the book, has already addressed their sinful and arrogant attitude as a church on numerous occasions. 
He addresses their pride as a church in chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 1, verse 31, 321, 46, 47, 418, 419, and chapter 5, verse 2. Their boasting is not good. They got nothing to be proud about as a church. Because even if they were doing things right, they still have nothing to be proud about because everything they have is a gift from God. But nonetheless, Paul wants to remind them they ought to be mourning. They ought to be broken that this kind of sin is going unchecked in their midst and they seem to care nothing about it. So Paul says, your boasting is not good. Why does he say that? Verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So again, Paul uses an illustration that they would have been familiar with. Um, technically speaking, some translations want to use yeast. Paul was, leaven would be the more accurate term that Paul is Referring to here, leaven technically is any substance such as yeast or baking powder, for example, that is used to produce a gas that lightens dough or batter. And no, I'm not a culinary expert. I did research. But technically, that's what leaven is, as opposed to yeast, which is a single-cell living organism that can be added to Dough, because it's a living organism, it eats the sugars within the grain or the dough or whatever it is. It produces a byproduct, which is gas, which causes the bread to rise. And this yeast, because it's a single-celled living organism, reproduces, creates colonies. They spread throughout the dough, eating the sugar, producing gas, and causing the dough to rise. In biblical times, the most common way of doing this with bread, as you continue to make bread, is they would make the dough that was leavened, and it would rise, and then they would pull off a little piece of it, and they would properly store it for later use. And then later, when they would make more dough, they would add that piece into it and leave it for a while, and it would, again, it would reproduce, and the yeast would spread, and it would cause it to rise, and they would keep pulling off piece after piece after piece and reusing it for future bread. And so they all understood this in that day and age. They were all familiar with this, so it made sense to them that all it takes is a little leaven. It doesn't take much. You take a little piece of dough that is leavened, and you add it to the bigger piece, and it will work its way through the entire lump, and it will spread. Unchecked sin in the church works much the same way, is what Paul wants them and us to understand. Unchecked sin within the church works much the same way. And the infection can be spread by behavior, which is why Paul will go on to tell them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example, verse 33 and 34, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you can hang around with this crowd. Don't think that you can watch these kinds of shows or movies that border on ethical appropriateness. Don't think that you can listen to garbage on the radio or the internet and I won't be affected by it. Paul essentially says, you're a fool if you think that. You are deceiving yourself if you think you can expose yourself to the evil and sinful and wicked behavior and ideology of the world and not be affected by it. Because you will. The infection can spread by behavior or it can spread by bad theology. Stuff that we listen to. The podcast, the sermons, the books that we read, the articles that we read. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus warns his own disciples about this. Verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the five, uh, the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Right? Jesus is saying to them, you really think I would, I would be telling you, make sure we have bread? Like we actually have to have a loaf of bread in order for me to feed you? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they, the disciples, understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If Jesus thought that it was important enough to warn his own disciples, be careful about what you expose yourself to theologically, what should that mean for us? Yet so often, we expose ourselves to bad theology. So often we know of people in our midst who are exposing themselves to bad theology. We know it and we say nothing. We pray for them. We try to encourage them to, well, just be careful about listening to that person. When we should be saying, you need to stop listening to that person. And if you don't, I'm going to tell somebody who will convince you that you need to stop listening to that person. Not because I'm arrogant, but because I care about the body and I care about myself. I may be the 
pinky toe on the foot, and you may be the thumb, but what you do is going to impact me eventually. Because we're all a part of one body. So the question is, what what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29 to 30 certainly applies to the church. Unchecked sin can grow and infect the entire body, and it can kill or at least damage the entire body. The question that we often struggle is, is what kind of sin should we confront? Right? We struggle with that. I get that, right? I understand what you're saying, Hexen, but, but where do we draw the line? What sin do we call out in other people, and what sin do we just leave alone? What sin should we allow to go unchecked? Here's the answer, the biblical answer. Brace yourself for this. None. None. And you may think, holy cow, so what are you saying? We just go around judging everybody, condemning everybody, hauling everybody to the front of the church for church discipline? Understand this, and I hope you'll hear me out. First of all, I want to say two things about that. Number one, I say that because no crack in a dam should be considered insignificant regardless of how small. Right? No crack in a dam should be considered insignificant regardless of how small. Because if you live downstream from that dam, you're going to be concerned. But at the same time, not every crack in a dam needs to be addressed and repaired the same way, right? If it's small, hairline crack, you know, I don't know how they fix dams, but they probably use some sort of spackle, maybe cement, put it on there. We're good. It's a small thing. It's, well, that, that, that'll take care of it. But if it's a little bigger and maybe there's water that is sort of trickling out of it, or that's a little concerning. Maybe we should be a little more aggressive in how we take care of that. If there's water that is shooting out about 10 feet, that's very concerning, right? Let's call in the Army Corps of Engineers, and we need to evacuate people. Not every sin should be addressed the same way. Right? Some sin, addressing some sin in a fellow brother or sister's life is simply a matter of saying something in the moment. You know, that sounds like gossip. I don't think we should have that conversation, and you probably shouldn't repeat it. There you go. Small crack. We're going to fix it, right? Some sin should be addressed gently by coming alongside the person and simply suggesting, hey, why don't you and I get together and read a book together? You know, like The Pursuit of Holiness or... Practice of Godliness or uh, the Path of True Godliness by William Tillich or, um, or maybe let's study a book of the Bible together. What would you think? We'll get together once a week. We'll go through a book of the Bible. And I'm just going to happen to recommend a book that addresses the sin that I see in your life. Right? You seem to have a loose tongue. Let's go through James. You seem to struggle with loving people, right? Let's go through 1 John together. 
You seem to struggle with finding joy in your life. You always seem depressed. Let's go through Philippians together. You seem to struggle with the assurance of your salvation. Hey, let's go through Hebrews together. Some sins need a more direct approach, depending on the severity of it, where you have to meet with a person and say, okay, I'm just going to tell you this, because this is wrong, and it's got to stop. But no crack in a dam should be considered insignificant, regardless of how small. Paul then moves on to his second point in verse 7, which is that all believers must strive to maintain the purity of the church. This is every believer's responsibility, to strive to maintain the purity of the church. I know the men just finished going through a study that talks about that, and I know the ladies in BFA are going through the same study where that argument is made by the writer, and I think he does a good job of it. Preserving the purity of the church is the responsibility of every member. And so he says in verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In these verses, it is clear that what Paul has in mind is the Passover feast and the Old Testament Feast of Unleavened Bread, which immediately followed the Passover Feast. The Passover was one day, it was celebrated on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar, which is around April time frame. The month of Nisan in Hebrew. The 14th day is the Passover, and then the following seven days immediately after the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they would eat no, nothing with leaven. There was no leaven in their home prior to the Passover so often, or, or not often, all the time, prior to the Passover in the Old Testament. And even today, the Jews would spend at least a week prior to Passover cleansing all of the leaven out of their home. Get rid of all of it. I watched a documentary recently on Orthodox Jews. It was quite fascinating. And prior to Passover, uh, many of them will hire professional cleaning crews to come into their home, and they vacuum every nook and cranny around the house, and they vacuum all of the outlets and the plugs and make sure there is no leaven in the house before Passover. Now, sadly, much of what they do is driven by the idea of works. They think in their keeping of the law they are earning eternal life and favor with God, which is really sad to see how hard they work to try to get to heaven. But the point of why God had them do that in the Old Testament, commanded them to remove the leaven, is that it was to remind them of God's deliverance from slavery. The Passover reminds them of God's delivery from slavery, how God brought them out and made them a people to be his own, and how 
They had to leave Egypt in a hurry, but also to symbolize how they were to live their lives in light of their deliverance. Throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament often uses leaven to symbolize sin. You see that. I'll give you one reference, Hosea 7, 4. It doesn't always, but quite often, leaven is used as a symbolism for sin. Thus, prior to the Passover, the Jews, again, would spend a lot of time removing the leaven. This all came to symbolize that in light of God's deliverance, they should live their lives without leaven. They should strive to live their lives in obedience to the word of God in light of what God has done for me, in light of what God has done for us. He's delivered us. We should live in obedience without leaven in our lives. That's really what the whole idea of the Passover and then the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was all supposed to remind the Israelites of that. God deliver you, now live your life free of leaven. Thus, he says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, there's a little bit of confusion here with the, uh, the illustration that Paul is using because on the one hand, how do you take leaven out of a lump of dough when it's already there, right? You really can't do that. I mean, if the leaven is there, you can't, you can't remove the leaven out of the lump. But on the other hand, if they really are unleavened, which is what Paul says to them, if they really are unleavened, then why tell them to remove the leaven because shouldn't there not be any leaven there in the first place? I point this out to you because it sounds like this doesn't quite make sense. Is Paul contradicting himself? What exactly is Paul saying? Understand Paul is using an illustration, right? And every illustration will break down if you press it too far, right? So we always have to understand that when we read illustrations in the Bible. Essentially, what Paul is doing by using this illustration is he is giving them an imperative based on an indicative. Let me explain what that means. An indicative phrase in the Bible, a sentence or a phrase that is an indicative phrase, is a phrase that states what is. It's a state of being. It's a reality. This is what is. An imperative is any phrase or sentence in the Bible that gives a command. This is what you should do. This is what God commands, or this is what you should not do. So an indicative is a state of being, and an imperative is what you ought to do or what you ought not to do. So in this verse... Paul offers to the church an indicative. And the indicative is this, God's church is unleavened, holy and forgiven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul wants them to understand that, that if you're a believer, if you're a true church, then you are free of sin because you have been forgiven You are holy, you are redeemed, you are sanctified. 
justified in the eyes of God. Thus, based on the indicative, Paul issues the imperative. The church must cleanse out any leaven in her midst. Because you are holy, because the church of God is holy, we cannot tolerate leaven. We should not tolerate leaven within our midst. In other words, Paul wants them to carry out the imperative in light of the indicative. This is what you are. Therefore, this is how you should live. Cleanse out the old leaven from among you. Theologian Tom Schreiner, I thought, had a wonderful quote regarding this text that I thought I would just share with you because I thought, I can't say it any better, so I could either plagiarize or I could just share the quote with you. Here's what Tom Schreiner said, quote, the indicative is the basis for the imperative. But the indicative certainly does not cancel out the need for the imperative. If the imperative is not carried out, it calls into question whether one has truly experienced the indicative. If the imperative is not carried out, if there is no desire to cleanse out the old leaven from our lives or from our church, then it calls into question, have we actually experienced the indicative? Are we truly saved? Are we a true church if we're not willing to carry out the imperative? And that's Paul's point. You really are unleavened. Therefore, cleanse out the old leaven in your midst. Paul then offers an explanation for his prior statement, the middle of verse 7 to verse 8. For, right? You always want to pick up on those little words that help us interpret correctly. For, so this is explanatory. He's explaining. He just made a statement, but now he's going to offer an explanation as to why I made that statement. Why did I just say what I said in the first half of verse 7? For, here's the reason, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, the feast of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Paul sees that the Old Testament Passover and the seven-day feast of unleavened bread is actually a picture of Christ and the church. That's what he sees. He sees that that Old Testament celebration, the Passover on day 14, and then the next seven days, the feast of unleavened bread, is actually designed as a picture of Christ, what he would do for the church, and then therefore how the church is to live post crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. See, the number seven in the Bible is considered a perfect number. It is a perfect period of time. In the Old Testament, there was the blood of the Passover lamb, which protected God's people from his wrath, right? That's what happened in the original Passover. The lamb is sacrificed. The blood is put over the doorpost. It protects the people from the wrath of God and therefore delivers them 
from his punishment. There was the Passover lamb which protected the people of God from his wrath, and that was followed by a perfect period of time of living without leaven. Paul wants us to understand that Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover lamb whose blood covers us, whose blood protects us, whose blood delivers us. That event has happened. It is a one-time event. The true ultimate Passover has happened. Now the church, after the Passover sacrifice of Christ, for a perfect period of time, which is until Christ returns, we ought to strive to live our lives without leaven. In our lives and in the church. Until Christ returns. Hence, Paul says in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. That's, that's the old man. Crucify that. Put that aside. Put that out of your life. Put that out of your church. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Meaning, being genuine in light of who we are. That's what I think he means by that. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Being genuine with who we are. Being genuine with one another. We're a family Family holds each other accountable. Family talks to one another. Family doesn't allow our family members to go driving off a cliff because, well, they look like they're having so much fun. I hate to ruin it. They'll figure out there's a cliff there eventually, and I'll just pray they survive. That's not what family does. The important thing about what Paul is driving home is that as believers, we need to learn to think corporately and not just individually. So that's a problem with modern-day evangelicalism, particularly in the American church. The Christian life is not just about making sure that I'm okay. The Christian life is about making sure that we're okay. The Christian life is not just about me. The Christian life is about us. As believers, we need to learn to think corporately and not individually. You know, it's said in politics all the time, you know, when people ask for their health records and their financial records, right? And some politicians balk at that, and when they do, it is oftentimes said, if you wanted to live a private life, then you shouldn't have entered public politics or you shouldn't have ran for public office. There's some truth to that. Beloved, listen, if you wanted to live a private life, then you shouldn't have gotten saved. Because according to Paul, there's no privacy within the church. Everybody's business is all of our business because it affects all of us. These verses 
ultimately are not about the individual, in belie- un- the individual believer cleansing out leaven from his or her life. Though that is true, and there are many verses we can go to to look for that, I want to be clear that contextually, these verses, this chapter, is not about individual believers cleansing out the sin in their life. It is about all of us cleansing out the leaven within our church. Because believers, all believers, every believer has a biblical responsibility to protect the unity and the purity of the church. To identify dangerous behavior or dangerous teaching and initiate the steps of Matthew 18. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, you go talk to them. He doesn't say, keep it to yourself and pray for them. Or take it to somebody else. Or take it to the church. He says, if you love them, go talk to them. Within the church, when it comes to sin, we must be intolerant of tolerance. Because tolerance is dangerous. Now, I want to be clear because I'm going to say this again. That doesn't mean being harsh or cruel, or unmerciful. Not every crack in the dam needs the same approach. Not every sin needs to be corrected in the same way. But nonetheless, as a church, we ought to strive for being intolerant of tolerance because it's dangerous. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we reflect upon the message from Paul, Lord, we pray that we would be the kind of church that is driven by love. Lord, even as we reflect not only on this passage, but the reading of the law this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. That we ought to be driven by gentleness and humility and true love for one another, striving to maintain unity, overlooking sin does not bring about unity. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us a church that truly loves you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And because we love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, we will genuinely love each other. And because we genuinely love each other, it will grieve us to see sin not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would make us into a church that truly, greatly brings you glory and honor and praise. In Christ's name.